The mystical American Patriot Society is transmitting to you from beneath 4 million cubic feet of solid granite, in the burning heart of the Yellowstone caldera. This is a variety program for normal sandwich-eating Americans with some concerns about living in a deranged, post-Christian technocracy. So, keep your third eye on the sky and your ear to the ground, as Sumo and Smokestack connect your main brain vein to a higher plane. Are you ready? Stand by. There once was a stock that put to sea, and the name of the stock was GME. The price blew up, the short stripped down. Hold my bully boys, hold. Soon may the tindy man come to send our rocket into the sun. One day when the trading is done, we'll take our gains and go. She had not been two weeks from shore when Ryan Cohen joined the board. The captain called all hands and swore he'd take the shares and hold. Soon may the tindy man come to send our rocket into the sun. One day when trading is done, we'll take our gains and go. Before the news had hit the market, Wall Street bets came up and bought it. With diamond hands, they knew they'd profit if they could only hold. Soon may the tindy man come to send our rocket into the sun. One day when trading is done, we'll take our gains and go. Line go up, everybody. Line go up. Line go up. Line go up, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. That's the crossover uh, gamer attack of Wall Street slash sea shanty. That was rad. Yeah. It made me want to eat some tendies. Yeah, we gotta take our tendies into the sun. Today, we're talking all about line going up. Yeah, baby. Line going up and how line can go up more and how your line can go up. This is temporarily a, a an investment show. Oh, no. Slash also uh, why everything is going to, what is going to be different. Nothing we say should ever be perceived as financial advice. <laughs> yeah, for legal purposes... This is not financial advice, nor do we offer medical advice. Mm. But for purposes of getting really lots of money, that you should listen. All our advice should be taken to be metaphysical, right? Yeah. Except or or cryptographic. Yes. Yeah. Because you know, I was uh, well. Everyone has been aware of the GameStop saga. No, listener, are you sitting there saying what GameStop saga? If so, you need to go back and review a little bit of history. In the past week or two, it really was history being made. It was awesome. Yeah. So I'm. So briefly, what it is is for those not aware or still confused. A lot of people are still confused about what happened. Like, there's a lot of people that know something happened, but they're like, "What? What is? A sh- what is shorting?" All right. Here's a shorting. Smokestock is a is a big shorter. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's say I have. So let's say let's say we're we're taking we got a stock called Smokestack, and it's correlated to how handsome he is. Okay, on any given day. Well, if I am a hedge fund, I borrow shares of of Smokestack from him, right? And I promise I will pay them back at a later date. Then I sell these shares that I do not own that I have borrowed to Party B. Let's say I sell them to Duke of uh, of Alba, and then 
That would make, and I sell them all. That would make me like a hundred percent shorted. But can I go more? Can I get more crooked? Yes, I can. I will then, having sold them to Duke of Alba, I will then borrow them again from Duke of. Now I didn't own them to begin with. I borrowed them to begin with. I will then borrow them from him, and sell them to Chad, deportation specialist. You know, maybe not all of them this time. Maybe a little bit. You know, but I get more returns on those in the in the short. And then maybe I want to eat a bit more. So I borrow again from Chad. Take them. Not all of them this time again. A little bit. And then I sell them to uh, Creative Accidents. And I, at no point did I own any of it, but I sold it three times. And that's how you short a stock more than 100%. And what that means is when you borrow the stock, when you short it, you have to, you are legally contracted. You, you're hoping the stock price will go, you will sell it at the nice price. And then you're betting against it, hoping it will go down and you can hand it back to them when it's cheaper. But if the price goes up, you can lose essentially infinite money, especially if you stack it like that, which is what happened and what the Redditors saw. And when it goes up and uh, so they made line go up, so their lines would go up, but then hedge fund line go down. Big down. And the big down of the hedge fund line Made made uh, Washington and Wall Street go ooh bad. Mm-hmm. Can't have this is right? like a pitchfork rebellion online, right? And also uh, the three people I mentioned who bought the stock. Uh, thank you very much for your donations. Indeed, thank you, boys. What what a, what a great what a great what great people they are. I always say people that donate to the show are the most moral people that have ever lived. And we'll he, he does always say that. Yeah, he says that all the time. The best people ever. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you uh, for for buying us herbal teas. Indeed, indeed. It's very great of you. Here, here. Um, but yeah. So so that's how you short a stock, in essence, and then uh, it's just a way to steal money, and then people have the what, and then what's called a short squeeze, is when you realize someone is overshorted. And then you coordinate a buy to drive the price up to then bankrupt that person and make them give you your money, give give you their money, which is what was organized by the plebs on Reddit. And is this is a problem when a lot of people do it, but it's never been a problem when other hedge funds or investment firms do it to each other, which oh, yeah. they do semi-frequently. But they have a see. The problem is that hitherto all the hedge funds and the the um, investment firms have had sort of a gentleman's agreement that they wouldn't kill one another doing this. They would all get rich together, right? right. Yep. But then they wouldn't like short squeeze to oblivion. But then uh, Wall Street Bets had no such um, gentleman's agreement. And they purposefully, and in fact, in many cases, kamikazically, Mm-hmm. wanted to destroy their own portfolios simply to kill the hedge fund. Yeah. It was great. Which is I, what's different. Yeah. I, I read this awesome little post by one of the WSB trading guys, and he said that he's going to hold this stuff forever, and he doesn't care if he loses his entire investment because he, <laughs> he watched his dad get absolutely destroyed in 2008 yeah. during the the, uh, the housing crisis. Uh, uh-huh. And he remembers the Wall Street guys all sipping champagne while they got rich, destroying regular guys all over the country. And 
Yeah. You know, his dad never recovered and all this stuff. And he's like, this is for you, dad. I'm taking him down. And so many people were in this for reasons like that. And I'm so glad. And and they cleaned him out, man. So the damage is what, 20 billion so far? Yeah, they're going to bankrupt that place. And more than one hedge fund is going to go bankrupt, apparently. It's all remains to be seen, but that's the way it's looking. Yeah. And the thing is, uh, you can do this a lot more. Yeah. Because will anyone learn the lesson from shorting stocks in this? No. No. They will do it for some time until this this tactic is either... I don't see how you can stop the tactic because... Like I was going to say, until the tactic is made illegal because all it is is you'd have to make buying stocks illegal when someone shorts them. But then that would defeat the ability of the short to gain gains. Well, they they don't have to make it illegal. Just all the retail platforms can shut it down like they tried to during this thing. Right, but then that's a very short-term thing because then all all it takes is one guy forming his own hedge fund or something and then saying, okay, well, now we're in a quote-unquote official hedge fund. Yeah. Or taking control. I mean, it would would quickly come back in a new form, right? Right. Because someone else would just perform the stunt to get megabucks. Um. Which is good not, because like said, shorting shouldn't really be allowed anyway. I mean, shorting it's, shouldn't it's be ridiculous. Allowed. Right. I mean, it's it's ever it's the quintessence of Wall Street crooked casino sort of behavior, and they destro- and they destroy companies doing this too. Yeah, this is the main tactic they use when they do a quote unquote hostile takeover, right, of a company. Uh, so and. and I mean, like the short squeeze is not new. I mean, uh, and even even the populist short squeeze is not new. Max Kaiser, you ever heard of Max Kaiser? Yeah. Well, Max Kaiser is this guy. He's been predicting the the end of the economy for like 15, 20 years now, maybe longer. And he's not wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, he's been saying it's, it's headed for a cliff. It's a cliff. It's a cliff. That's sort of what he sounds like. Um, <laughs> and he also... Uh, is an older gentleman that recognized the value of Bitcoin early on and is now like a trillionaire. Awesome. Um, but he did, he organized a short squeeze of silver, like the metal silver, mm-hmm. which is also shorted. Uh, early 2000s and 90s, and he drove the price up like, to, you can still see the price of when he did that on the graph. It's like, <laughs> boom, Pete. And then uh, he made out like a bandit doing that. And, um, the reason uh, Elon Musk has been egging it on is they tried to short Tesla back in the day, and he's still angry about it. Oh, man. They went so to sh- war on him. Yeah. Yeah. Shorts make a lot of enemies, and um, it's just not a great, great practice to do, but they did it, and now they are. Here they are. You know. Well, good so, job, millennials on Reddit, for taking it to them. I'm proud of you guys. <laughs> Yeah, this is what we've been saying. Like, when you have a big... What we have now is a giant underclass of young men of military fighting age with nothing to lose, and they're just going to start wrecking everything. Awesome. And they're also pretty smart. So this has moved my personal timetable of the collapse of the economy up. Because now people are, like, purpose... Have you seen that meme? It's like the two doges, and the sad doge, and the muscular doge. Mm -hmm. And the sad doge is 1920s people and they're like oh where the stock market crashed i'll go kill myself and then the muscular doge is 20 people in 2020 i will crash the stock market um for fun for a meme 
<laughs> Which, like, so, just... it, I've seen some, like, hyperbolic uh, descriptions of the chain reaction that could come of this if uh-huh. if GME doesn't drop back down. Uh, and that kind of the cascading effects of the different hedge fund collapses and, and different funds losing their investments and un- being unable to, you know, pay back what they owe on their shorts. Right. Um, is all that just sort of people getting it, it's hyperbolic. You know I mean? It's hyperbolic for this one instance. Mm-hmm. But this tactic, if used several times, could produce such an effect. Yeah. Cool. You know, so you could. But 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 more than that, it. The, the 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 danger to the United States and the globe is that it people show, see how fake it is, right? And how and all fiat currencies are faith based. The dollars were something because you believe it is. Yeah. And if people suddenly say, "Oh, wait a minute, this is a rigged system here," the 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 faith in the system begins to crumble, and it's it will snowball until. Uh, people are like, well, I don't want to use these anymore, or I want to use something else. And I'm the, we're going to talk about today in the first part of the show why that's probably going to happen faster than you think. Sweet. Uh, why the 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 why crypto's at the center of that, and why and the and the the religious implications of Bitcoin. Awesome. We'll do all these things. All these things. Well, okay. Bef- so before first, we wait, before go ahead. we get started, I got to tell you a story. I, I had tell a, me story. I had a very um a very fun day yesterday. <laughs> I got to ref a fight between two of Ooh. our listeners. No way. Yes way. Albert Einstein. Why were they fighting? Were fought, they were they being? No, they were a boxing competition. Oh, Albert Einstein fought whom? Uh, well, he doesn't have a maps name, so I'm going to now dub him Lanky Elvis. So Albert Einstein Ooh. fought Lanky Elvis. Uh, okay, yesterday. now wait a minute. I, just from the description, uh-huh. the boxing advantage goes to Lanky Elvis because arm length is a huge advantage in boxing. Well, they it was funny because they both have long arms, but they were both uh-huh. um, assuming that their arms were longer than they actually are. So there were lots oh, yeah, of distancing. failures to connect. Uh, but it was it ended up being a really good fight. They went five rounds. Uh, uh-huh. Five three minute rounds, which was incredibly exhausting just to watch. Oh yeah! Uh, yeah but yeah. they both fought bravely, and uh, you know I congratulate Albert Einstein on his victory. Oh yeah, was it a knockout or a technical? No, or it was what? a technical. It was all you know. He won on on points and defensive technique. It was yeah. it was a very it was a fundamentals driven boxing match for sure. Now, did you have a ring? No, we did it on a soccer field. I have so many questions. Okay. Why did this? Why did this fight come? Was there anger? Was this out of like desire to try and learn to box? Uh, How it, did this come about? It's it's uh, kind of a, a fraternal um, rivalry. Uh, so they're they're going through different fighting styles. So they've done sumo wrestling, and now they're oh they, yeah. And then yesterday was boxing, and then I think uh-huh. the next one is going to be like Greco Roman wrestling or something. So I don't know. Oh, that's the, the guys. Let me tell you to something ref, to ref these fights. So I'm I'm really excited about the next the next two. Well, let me tell them something. Uh, Greco Roman wrestling. If you thought you were tired, boxing. <laughs> Everyone agrees. If you've done the, wrestling, is the most exhausting sport in existence, and it's not even close. Like, I, I mean, maybe more exhausting would be. So sprinting for five minutes but the problem is no one can sprint for five minutes so it doesn't happen mm-hmm. right but but it, i mean it's it is like the most 
Well, first of all, are you doing Greco or freestyle? Because a lot of people think that I, I really don't know that. what style of wrestling is it's going to be. Okay, if it's if it's high if it's if it's high school style wrestling, that's freestyle. Okay, and Greco is um, uh, I I never did Greco. So I think I think the main difference is Greco doesn't allow you to to grab to shoot the legs mm-hmm. because they want big slams. So that's why I never get in a thing with a Greco Roman guy. They're the, the most intense people on the planet. <laughs> um, but uh, the the wrestling is I mean boxing is exhausting. Don't get me wrong, right? But wrestling is is in, insanely exhausting. Um, and sumo wrestling, by contrast, is not exhausting because it's over so quickly. However, it's more intense. It's more. It's more uh, the the uh, the the fight, quote unquote, la- is lasts only seconds, but it's extremely intense. You know, I was uh, I did I did a brief stint on the the amateur international sumo circuit. I don't know if I talked about that. Oh, before. you've talked about that a couple times, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, say, I don't. I forget what I talk about, but the um the the, the matches are way more in- intense than because they're so it's it's based on well, it was made to trade to train samurai. And if you ever fight with a sword or a knife or whatever, it's not a long process. Someone is dead pretty quickly, right? And a lot of the, a lot of the old um, wrestling styles, they went to the fall, which is where you knock someone down. Because if you knock someone down in a sword f- battle, it was pretty much over. You could because your ability to stab them while they're on their back on the ground is much higher than their ability to stab you. So sumo wrestling comes from that tradition where if you knock someone down or push them out, it's over. Um, a lot of European folk wrestling styles had the same rule rule set for the same reasons. But yeah, I'm 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 pleased with them. I think we need to get them in many different wrestling styles um, or, or fighting styles. If any other uh, listeners would like me to ref their fights, I cannot attest to any skill in refing or really much knowledge of fighting, but I would yet be happy to do it for you. I think after they do they do wrestling, they should do uh, fencing, and they could just do normal Olympic fencing. Well, I like the idea of of fighting to the fall and then doing multiple rounds. I think that would enhance uh, and add some variety to some other fighting sports. Oh yeah, it does. It does. Like wrestling at the sword, like like the a lot of the fight books from Europe that describe fencing, they just call it wrestling. Oh really? Because huh. yeah, they just call it wrestling because uh, well, what if you're in a suit of armor? Um, the the hacking doesn't end the thing instantly, mm-hmm. and so then you're wrestling with the guy to try and like put your point in the joist of his thing and stab it in. Gotcha. Uh, very very violent. But I so so Lanky Elvis and Einstein mm-hmm. to the to the death. Next one has to be to the death. No 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 no. And they have <laughs> just to the fall. They have or to something. they have to wrestle in a shallow pool of water. Mm-hmm. And the winner must hold the loser's head under until he drowns. <laughs> and we will call this the Maps Ride of Ascension. Neither neither one of them are that bloodthirsty. <laughs> <laughs> the Maps Ride of Ascension. Uh, yeah, we're gonna base this. Our we're, we're, me and Smokestack have been discussing how to build our um, community culture. And it's right? gonna be we're gonna have you all kill one another. It's we're thinking mainly Klingon based. Yeah, maybe I don't know. We give us some more models, 
but uh, I, but I'm I'm pleased to see that at least some of our listeners are are willing to go the Klingon route. Well, our, you know, our audience will necessarily shrink, yet they will become so much stronger. Right. You know. It's, yeah. It's really it's it's qualitative growth, audience growth, qualitative growth. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. So so good. I don't remember what I was saying. Oh, right. Why the why everything is going to fall apart? Yes. Why everything is going to fall apart, and why it's going to fall apart much more uh, thoroughly than you can imagine, and probably maybe not as fast, but in some cases maybe faster than you think. Okay, so let's do let's talk about it. Um, uh, a lot of my a lot of my friends that I speak with are still sort of like Bitcoin. I don't know. Isn't that isn't that pretend? You know, still. Mm-hmm. And I understand it because what they are envisioning and what, what, what the normie version of what crypto is and Bitcoin is. First of all, most people have only ever heard of Bitcoin. Uh, and then if they've heard of crypto at all. And then they and then of that, people say, oh, it's like Internet money. Right. And then people look into it in a bit, and they're like, oh, well, it has long latency times, and it's sort of complicated, and how can that ever be money, right? And it's just, what's it backed by, they say, and then they never realize what they're saying about the U.S. dollar. But uh, the, the, the currency or an asset, because Bitcoin did not, has not so far created a currency. It's not traded for goods and services. In any large quantity. You can, if you want to, but people mostly just hoard it like Scrooge McDuck. Well, I, I had the experience recently of actually buying something with crypto online. And, yeah, uh, and how was your re- experience? Well, it, it was great. It really, uh, something clicked in my brain when I did it. I said, oh, I, yeah. t- I took this thing and I bought something else with it. So I bought yeah. an, I bought an Urbit Planet with it. Yeah. And I used, See, uh, you know, a, a brow- uh, an in-browser... Um, wallet to do it and it was i mean it, it integrated with the website it was like bam quick easy yeah. so much easier than a credit card and it and it's just as the thing that occurred to me is like this money is just as real as the credit card money i was using like exactly. us dollars are now internet money too eggs thank you, you such know. a good way to put it us dollars are now internet money too and it all became in that moment it all just became the same thing yeah, you 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 have your road to Damascus moment the moment you start you pay for something with a Bitcoin. Uh, so you can use it as that, but at the moment everyone's just hoarding it like Scrooge McDuck. Okay, so maybe we haven't at this point created a digital currency, but we've created a digital asset. Okay, whatever. And so that's what most people get in their heads of like, oh, this is this is it's internet money. Okay, but that makes that. It's so much more than that. That's like this base level. It's like base levels internet money. What we're actually talking about is a complete and total replacement of the current global financial system. I mean insurance. I mean uh, loans. I mean uh, uh, company contracts. Probably even government services. All of it's going to be replaced by crypto. And, you know, next year? No, this is why you have bubbles. Because people think, they, they hear this and they're like, you explain it to them and they're like, what? And they're like, oh, it's going to happen. It will, it'll take some time. 
not next year, but people are going to get excited about it when they, as they learn about it, and they're going to buy real quick, hoping for a quick payoff, and there will be bubbles and bursts along the way. Yes. But in 10 to 20 years, absolutely. Most of what, like insurance companies are going to be largely put out of business. Um, banking and loan services will move largely to the crypto space. Perhaps even, and I think likely, many central banks of governments will be destroyed because so, they will have no more use. Okay. I have questions yes. already. Yes. Shoot. Um, the insurance industry is enormous and practically uh, is like a force of government unto itself at this point. How, I know. Yeah. How would cryptocurrencies put insurance out of business? So – when you realize that, see, this is, that's the thing, that the misnomer is cryptocurrencies. Most of them are not currencies. Like Most of the ones on a exchange are not currencies. Okay, so um, are we talking are. about blockchain technology generally here? Blockchain this? technology, crypto okay. technology, okay. correct. All right, so what, like, let's take Ethereum, for example. It's the most well-known. Ethereum is not designed to be a cryptocurrency. It's designed to be smart contracts on the blockchain. Okay. So immutable contracts that uh, fulfill their contractual obligations automatically. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what happens is when you have insurance, you know, you have everyone pays to this central insurance agency. Okay. And then when something happens, you file a claim, you send them the paperwork, they look through it, they approve or deny, and they send you money. Right? Right. So this requires some central authority. But... In the Ethereum blockchain, what you can do is you can make something called a smart contract. And that's a contract. It's basically, it's a computer program. And it's on the blockchain, so no one can ever alter it. Unless the program has it within itself, like some rules of alterations among the parties. But mm -hmm. let's leave that aside for a minute. No one can ever alter the contract. So there's, there's uh, so let's say you have, uh, let's do something easy. Um, hurricane insurance. Okay. Okay. Long goes. Everyone, one of the problems when the past hurricane, her, Florida and the coast got hit hard by hurricanes in the 2010s, real hard. Yep. And oftentimes, so many people would file claims at once that it would take six months, nine months, even a year for them to get their money from the insurance agencies, mm -hmm. which is a long time if you don't have a roof on your house. It's a long time to be without insurance, right? Right. Uh, without the insurance money. Okay, so what, and it's also expensive. It's expensive. So, what if, though, everyone that was in a hurricane zone uh, had a uh, an insurance coin um, tied maybe to Bitcoin or to Bitcoin Cash or something, and they had paid in, say, $10 to it. And it went to the smart contract. And the smart contract had a... Um, a, a unique identifier for each user and for their geographical location they were insuring. And then when via various weather, you know, detection devices that are online uh, and services, it detects that in their area, maybe their zip code, maybe something more narrow than that, wind speeds get over, say, 80 miles an hour, instantly and automatically the money in that insurance pool is redirected to them and sent back. With no one at the helm. There's no insurance company. It's just the money has been put into this program. And then it says, 
did this person put money into the program? Yes. Did the conditions for ex- for sending it back out to them are fulfilled? Yes. It instantly goes to them, and they get it within 10 minutes. Okay, so you get the money whether or not you need it based on certain objective conditions that what and who does the adjudication well, of this? The smart contract only. So so that's what I gave was a very rudimentary okay. uh thing like where it just had one condition like if in your area wind speeds reach a certain thing mm-hmm. then pay out. But you could add on multiple conditions, right? Right. That would be automated and objective. And then uh that would that would pay out more selectively. So it'd be like, well, you know, you don't, cause you don't, what I just described is not very specific. It hits a large range of people in an area. Mm-hmm. Right. But you could come up with other metrics to make it more specific. And in fact, what I just described to you already exists and is taking people right now uh, for when they have enough money to start paying out. It's called hurricane.io. It already exists. It's a, it's a hurricane insurance on the blockchain that no one will be in charge of. It will just you pay into the algorithm, and if the conditions are met that you, that you re- need to receive the money, it will send it back to you. Another way you can do is earthquake insurance. You live in California. If seismographs detect an earthquake of sufficient magnitude, boom, you get a payout. Mm-hmm. Right. And yes, it is less specific because, like, what they do at least right now, you could you could envision that in the future it would be as specific. As current, because what they what current insurance agencies do is you go through and you itemize list everything that was damaged, right? And this takes a long time, but it's also you pay a huge expense with that, right? Um, instead of instead of like a six hundred dollar price tag for the for the current insurance, maybe this is probably a hurricane can be as cheap as ten dollars. You just put in ten dollars, and then if the metrics are met, then you get a nice payout that'll re- put the roof back on your house. If it happened to blow down, you see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, another one is you could do you could have um, uh, uh, you could have medical insurance if you upload a medical bill to the blockchain because the blockchain can handle data and documents, mm-hmm. and it detects that it matches you. Boom, pays out in your insurance to you right then. You don't need to wait a long time file a claim. You don't need to worry about whether or not your condition is met. By you know Blue Cross Blue Shield, it just instantly and automatically happens. Okay, question. Right? Yes. So my okay, admittedly, my understanding of how blockchain technology works is very limited. But it doesn't. Okay, okay. And correct me if I'm wrong here. It doesn't seem to me that built into that fundamental piece of technology is an algorithm that would be capable of judging medical bill PDF uploads for validity. Like there would need to be another component to this. Well, to, so to so, see what like does this is this real mm-hmm. or is somebody just sending me a goofball PDF they made to get a bunch of money from the blockchain? Right, right. So all a blockchain is is what the name describes is it's a chain of blocks of data, and what it what it aims to be is an immutable ledger of accounts. So right now, like if you go to the if I want to give money. To you, or if our if our listeners want to give money to us, which they should, uh, let's pretend they're doing that. Mm-hmm. If they want to go to buymeacoffee.com slash maps yep. and buy us a coffee, they would go there and they would tell uh, the website, take money out of my account and put it in that account. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the um, 
institution there is the buy me a coffee people. You do that with, say, Bank of America or Wells Fargo also. You say, take money out of this account, put it in that account. And everyone trusts, this is what's required, is trust yep. in the third-party institution, which may or may not be good some of right. the time, as we've yeah. seen, right? Uh, as in Patreon, Kickstarter, all these people, kick Airbnb, you kick you off you know, for bad politics or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it requires trust in a third party. So what the immutable ledger does, because no one can go back and change it, right? Because everyone, the decentralized record is kept around the globe and of the changes to the blockchain and verified by each user. So if, like if I make, if I make a fraudulent block and try to throw it onto the blockchain, all the other nodes around me are going to say, we don't recognize that and toss it out. And they're going to do that automatically. Right, no one has to. So, because you can't change it now, trust is decentralized. I don't need to. I can trust a random grouping of individuals around the globe. Mm-hmm. I can trust that I can do business with them without anyone messing up the ledger or cheating the ledger, without it getting complicated. And there's no need for any third party to do that. That's right. what a blockchain aims to do: is have an immutable ledger. Now. Those those blocks of data which are immutable, those can contain within them software programs. Oh. Right now, like in Bitcoin, it's very it's a it's a it's a simplistic, in some ways simplistic, um, by comparison, block of data. It pretty much just has sender, receiver, and amount. Okay, and that's the block. But there's no reason that the block can't have um, document reading software inside of it. And in fact, some do on a th- the various Ethereum chains. Okay. There's no reason it can't have uh, it can't have contracts in it. There's no reason it like it's just a block of data and the data can be anything you want as complex or as simple as you want it to be. It can be a full computer program. It can be a it can be you could do you could do the constitution of a decentralized country that had smart contracts subbed within it that would be fulfilled on automatic basis wow. you could do i mean the, the, the yes that's what when people start to see into that it's like oh i see this is this is an arrow aimed at the heart of every institution on the planet and that's that's this is one of the reasons in my opinion so many governments are freaking out right now is because this thing is like i mean it's deadly to any sort of centralized authority because like what do you do like what about this take food stamps if your income is below a certain amount you qualify for food and there's this whole problem if you're always dealing with it you're always trying to get it you know poor people know about how difficult it is to maintain or unemployment right or whatever um what if your 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 account your wallet on this system it's just below a certain amount the smart contract says they're below a certain amount they receive X amount per month. You could do that automatically. Right. And there would be no need for any government official, no government bureaucracy to handle any of it. Right. You could do that. Or how about this? Decentralized businesses. So take Airbnb. Airbnb is the central authority. You say, I have a room to rent. Because what we have right now is a sort of a hybrid model. We have... 
Uh, back in the day, you'd have a heavily de- heavily centralized hotel chain, right? Still, they still exist. Hilton, mm-hmm. right? Hampton mm-hmm. Inn. Just they all they ha- they own the rooms, they own the place, they own the thing. You pay them the money. It's a, right now. What we have is in Web 2.0, we have a hybrid mix of social decentralized decentralized internet, and also one party sort of controlling the the flow. Mm-hmm. So like Facebook, the, Facebook is all the content is decentrally cre- created, shared and spread, but it goes through the pipes owned by a central person, which is why they have so much authority and power. Same with Twitter and all these things. Airbnb, right? I have a, I have a room to rent. You want to rent the room? Great. We'll both do this interaction through a third, trusted third party, which is Airbnb, which may not be worthy of your trust because sometimes they kick you off for having bad politics. But what if instead of that you just said uh, we have uh, we have a ledger which keeps who's rented who's rented what uh, dwelling out at what time on the blockchain and a record of payment or non-payment and if payment has occurred right if payment from sender has met receiver then sender is is has the legal right to occupy that space at the set time and there's no need for Airbnb for Air, Airbnb there's it's like Airbnb with no one at the helm right so if there's a if there's a um if there's a dispute say say somebody paid for the room on the blockchain and then never got the key and was not allowed to stay there where do they take mm-hmm. their dispute right so you can do money so money in these smart contracts can be done in escrow and so it says well, it's held now and then uh you're you're out, you're like you can go in and then you go and you find the key's not there and you say, oh, this isn't fulfilled. And then it kicks the money back. Right. right? So then what if <laughs> resident says, gets the key, goes on there and says the key wasn't there, but they stay there anyway. Uh, now, what are they doing there? They're, oh, they, he says yeah. the key was Well, then yeah. the other person can dispute it. And the, one of the ways you could keep track of this is because everyone's, everyone's, uh, identity on the blockchain would be unique, although it could be unique and anonymous to your physical identity, which is great. Mm-hmm. You could have basically a Yelp style or eBay style review system where it's like this person has one star. They've pulled this trick several times. Okay. All right. Don't, so credibility. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You can build social credibility anonymously. Right. You know, only like, on that one system. Right. Ex- okay. Exactly. And so you see, like, you can build decentralized Airbnb. Mm-hmm. You can build decentralized Patreon. You can build decentralized Facebook. You can build decentralized Twitter, which is already done. It's called Twitch. It's pretty good. You make money when you post there. And if people like it, you get money. That's pretty cool. Um, you mean Twitch? Twitch. I'm sorry. Yeah, Slightly different. Twitch. Twitch. So Slightly let, let's different. expand that idea out. I want to I kind of make sure I'm getting the vision here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I want to start a little uh, bed and breakfast on uh-huh. uh, and I want it decentralized. So mm-hmm. some genius somewhere has has um, built out a function of the Ethereum blockchain to accommodate these contracts, as you described. And so I participate right. in this with the uh, with the guests via some uh, exchange, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, where mm-hmm. we send each other funds based on these smart contracts. And so then I accrue um, Ethereum based funds. Mm hmm. Uh, in my account on that chain, and then w- if I want to go spend them somewhere, I go to another exchange and I swap them for some other currency or f- for something that's more like a currency 
like uh, like Bitcoin or whatever. Correct. And people, this is the, what you just described is exactly right, and that is as clunky as it sounds at the moment. Okay. A lot of these projects on the chain right now and coming online are designed to help you deal to make that much more fluid thing. To the point where it may be almost invisible. Like there's all these different coins going around, but they're all somewhat invisible to the user. Like, for instance, one of the ones that I really like, right? Not investment advice, but it may go up real high, guys, is uh, (laughs) the graph, the graph GRT coin. What that is, is basically a Google for blockchain. It's a search engine. So it, it indexes all of the various blockchains right all the time and allows you to quickly look up look up data from any of them and then compare right Uh-oh. so you have that combined with these other uh, other chains to quickly convert one to the other mm-hmm. so maybe bitcoin becomes like the the trading one but it's but it's all done through these lo- other cryptocurrencies which look up these different chains which everyone is on for like this thing and this thing and then boo 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 looks at the smart contract. And then you receive Bitcoin and you send Bitcoin. And in the between, when you send the Bitcoin to pay for it, it's converted like, you know, maybe a dozen times different various things paid out. And then at the end, and you never even see that. Right? Right. But you but so you can see how this will become very quickly. I mean, not very quickly. Like we always Bill Gates, he's a demon, but he he had a good quote one time. He said, We overestimate the change that will happen in a year. And underestimate the change that will happen in ten, mm-hmm. right? And so this is not going to be like one of the things that people because people always they 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 the, crypto goes in these boom bust cycles as I've described. People when every time there's a bust, people are like oh it was a good idea, but I guess it's not going to work. And it's like guys, you got to have a longer vision. Like this is like in the 1800s, Britain had railway mania. You ever heard of railway mania? No. It was, or train mania, whatever. So trains were a thing and they were crazy. And (laughs) it was exactly the same thing. It was speculative, right? It was like, people were like, this is going to revolutionize travel, manufacturing, shipping, everything. This is a new era. We all have to get in. And there were all these startups that happened and all these speculations about what, and everyone thought like, in a year, I'm going to have my own personal train car. And they put in so much money and it was about so much and then it crash, right? Now, were was were trains overhyped? Not really. Trains worked out great. All of the predictions of what trains would do happened. They just didn't happen in the time frame that people were hoping to get rich in, which was like a year or two. Right. right? But trains I mean, trains are the reason the United States has the western half of the continent. Yeah. Like, trains are trains were a big deal. They 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 reshaped. Without trains, you really don't get the Industrial Revolution. Trains are a big... There was no overhype of the impact of trains, right? They still use trains every day in most major cities. No... But... People had the over, and this is the same thing with crypto. It's like, oh, you see all these things that are coming on the horizon and what they can do. And then people are like, I got to get in now. And they throw money at it. And then then it doesn't pay out in the time frame they want. And they get scared they're going to lose the money and they pull it back out. But it doesn't matter. 
in 10, 20 years time, all this is going to happen anyway. Just like trains are not overhyped. They're just not paying out tomorrow. Right. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the, with the internet, the, the dot com bubble. Was the internet overhyped in its impact? Not really. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone, I think even their estimates of what the internet would become were vastly understated. Right. Compared to where it is now. But people wanted the quick, they wanted it to pay to tomorrow. Right. But the internet became, the internet became more than anyone in the bubble, the dot com bubble ever thought it would. It's more used than people could have ever imagined. It's changed society in ways people never predicted. That's where crypto is right now. We're entering the dot-com bubble phase, and there's probably going to be two or three more of them, maybe more than that, uh, where people are like, they, they get all excited and they see it, and then it's like, ah, oh, it's not happening as soon as I want, and then it, it crashes, and then it'll go again and it crashes. But over time, the crypto is going to win. It's just better. It's just a better, and you, no one can turn it off. That's the crazy part. Like, no country could be like, oh, that's it. No more Bitcoins. It's like, well, you have to, they're still there. What are you talking about? You know, because no one is at, no one being at the helm means no one can turn it off. I mean, unless you just shut down the entire power grid across the globe. But then then you've done sort of a, that's a different move. Yeah. <clears throat> um. So, and then now will governments attack it? Hundred percent, they already are. the The existing power struggle will fight tooth and nail and make things very complicated and very frictional. In as they're getting replaced, they are not going to like being replaced by something that has no head that they can ever cut off. Right? They they're going to make they're going to try to make things illegal. They're going to try to prosecute. All these things are going to happen. Nonetheless, they are they are they are fighting uh, the 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 Greek animal with all the heads. Cerebrus was that it? No, Cerberus. No, that's Cerberus. The dog. Yeah, Cerberus. You're talking about the Hydra. Yeah, that's the dog. Yeah, the Hydra. Yes, the Hydra. They're fighting the Hydra. Every it's not going to work. So they're when I said like insurance companies are going to be wiped out and replaced, and banks are going to be because you can do with these smart contracts, you can do loans. You can do that, and it can be like you, and it would even have a credit score. Like, how good is this person at paying back their loans? How how worthy? How you know? How trustworthy are they to give them a loan? And then that would have a threshold of the amount they were able to take out. All of these services that these institutions provide now can be replicated, and in fact, in many cases, already are being replicated on the blockchain, and they happen faster, and they happen automatically, and they happen without prejudice. So when you see when you see that, then you're like, oh, okay, right. This is this is like as revolutionary as anything that's ever happened in history, because most institutions in the world are going to, like Max Kaiser has said, this is he, when Bitcoin came around in like by like 2012. He said this kills governments. He said I don't know how it works out, but he said many governments ex that exist right now are going to die, and he's right because they will. Their most of their use cases. Like providing for the, providing food stamps, providing Medicare, providing Medicaid, social insurance, governing the laws, maintaining contract law are not going to be necessary anymore. And he's he's absolutely right. And so that 
is a um, it's a it's a it's both a big opportunity and a big problem, and things are going to get pretty chaotic in that transition. This is only the start of the crazy. This is only the start of the crazy. So, so you see the transition to blockchain technology in a million different ways as being a uh, a big motivator of social chaos going forward. I think so because a lot of people are they're I mean they're scared of it. One, they don't even understand it. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the people, like I was saying, like you know, like it, on social media when people started getting kicked off Robinhood. The various actors were going, just, you know, they go, just build your own stock market. (laughs) You know, just build your own stock market. And then I replied like, yeah, we already did. And it works better. It's called Uniswap. And it's a decentralized stock market. Like right now you have Coinbase and Kraken, which are fine. I like them. They haven't done anyone bad so far. Right. I wouldn't put 100% trust in them. But, you you know, all that. But... There's no reason that you can't have a decentralized uh, crypto trading thing also. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we do. They, those exist. They're, they're still, they're, they're new. They're still a little clunky. They're, but they're going to get, they're, in 10 years time, it's going to be so fast that you really can't even. And the, this is what I mean. Like the governments are, the governments of the world and the existing institutions are nailing their own coffin and they don't even see it. Because what they're doing, they're rolling out things like 5G, which makes all of these internet transactions even faster, right? To the point where like Bitcoin becomes like liquid. It's just spent like back and forth, right? While they're eroding trust in their own institutions, right? At the same time, they're giving people the reason to hang them and then handing them the rope. And Mm. so... This is it's it's uh, it's going to be a big thing. And a lot of people that currently have money are going to be made really poor And Wall Street bets. And that is just the beginning of it, because that was a very, by comparison, simple attack by the plebs on the on the elites. Um, but and a lot of people are going to make crazy rich on it. And that's why I say, like, it, you should invest now in this stuff, because it, it will be like having Amazon in 1999 or whatever. But you're seeing be, this as an investment. You're seeing this as like a 10, 15, 20 year process, not a not a yeah. let's send dodge to the moon sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, you can do both and there will be because, like I said, there's going to be these boom bust cycles. And here's my investment advice. This is not financial advice. This is just what I do. Um, is that these like like I think February, this coming February in 2021 is going to be a big month for altcoins just because it sort of historically is and we're in a bull market or, or uh, you know and so you can ride them up and then you can ride them down and what i do is i say well, okay i've got three times profit i'll pull out some uh, now it's at six times pull out some more now it's at nine times pull out some even more and oh now it's starting to go down pull out pull out pull out, pull out right and so because you can never predict the peak never you never know when the peak is going to happen and it's stairs on the way up, and it's a and it's a cliff on the way down. So you just take the profits as you go up, take profit, take profit, take profit, take profit, and then like, oh, here we go down. And then you've mitigated, you know, most most of your risk, and you make, I mean, you can make a lot of money. You can make a lot of money, like, of ridiculous people are people get rich on crypto routinely. I mean, like, it doesn't even make it's it's sort of like. But it's because this is it's in it, what you it makes sense when you realize oh, 
they're getting in on the new global financial system that's mm-hmm. just being started, right? And you can make like if you bought Chainlink two years ago, it's it's gone up times ten. You threw in ten thousand dollars, now you have a hundred thousand. Wow! In two years, you know, I mean, if you throw in more than that, so it's. There's a lot of things like that now. There's things, like I said, the graph, and I'm not just saying that because I like the graph and I'm invested in it. Uh, the the it's, I hope that it will work out to be a like Google for blockchains, right? Polkadot is going to be great, pretty sure. Uh, maybe Stellar Lumens, I don't know. But see, all these things are going to, they, they will, so you can make a lot of money on these things, true, in the short term as well as in the long term. Like, it is possible even that Bitcoin becomes sort of the world reserve currency or like the global right now it's the U S dollar. A lot of people are afraid it's going to be the, the, the one, mm-hmm. uh, but it may be the Bitcoin in which case Bitcoin is so valuable. It's almost inconceivable. Like if, if the blockchain thing happens as many people think it and how it seems like it will, cause it's the new railroad, it's the new dot com thing. Um, if you just take the number of Bitcoins in existence and divide by the number of people that want to use it, you get a number of like a Bitcoin is worth a hundred thousand, a hundred million dollars or something like that, which is insane. But there's only 22 million of them ever. And that has to be divided by 7 billion people. Right. Right. So I never, I don't, I never really sell Bitcoins because I think that is like, that's the, but these other altcoins, you know, you can make short term money on like boom, 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 boom. Um, and you probably should, I mean, it's not, there's no, there's no shame in making the buck on the thing. Uh, you know, just be careful. Don't, don't put all your coin, don't put all your bread in one basket and, uh, don't, you know, you everyone wants to wait till the peak and then, the, then they miss the peak and they fall off the cliff. So you just got to take profit on the way up. It's my advice. But that's it's not, that's financial, not advice. financial advice. Correct. In a legal sense. No. But I'm just saying, you know. There's no reason so, you should listen to either of us, or really about anything. Yeah, really about anything. Ex- yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. But I'm just saying, uh, this is a. It's a. It's a. When you realize that it's more than currency, and it's actually these 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 data blocks can have within them anything you can program, and I mean anything you can program on a computer can be in these data blocks, then you're like, uh, oh, right, this destroys everything that we currently have. And that's why I've been saying, I've been thinking about the religious and philosophical implications of blockchain and the Bitcoins. Because it really, and I'm not saying this is good or bad, I'm not saying, I'm just making an objective judgment about how I see what's going to happen, I think, is that it, I think Bitcoin is sort of inherently Protestant because it throws away the central authority. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I think, well, what happens when you live in a society where central authorities sort of don't exist? Well, how does that, how do traditional religions handle that, which are very hierarchical? You know, uh, I think that, I think that it would lead to the, maybe the a further Protestant, Protestantization of Catholicism. A lot of people complain about that already. Uh, or maybe not. And then I think maybe it's the reverse. Maybe there's no hierarchy anywhere else in life and people desire it somewhere else. Maybe maybe it's the reverse. I don't know. Um, but so you get this this philosophy, like when, when, when people no longer have central authorities in so many areas of their lives, 
like like a, a good a good one is um there's a uh well there's when they talk about um decentralized um businesses and stuff and and they they use the term decentralized autonomous organization which spells dao and that's not a coincidence i don't think i think that was done on purpose because it's like it's a very sort of Taoistic, Taoistic sort of like, I don't know. It sort of it removes authority and makes it almost like natural or something, like mm-hmm. a nature-based thing. So I'm not sure how that's going to totally work out in making people's, how they form their philosophy and worldview. Because don't, I mean, we can't kid ourselves. Religion and, and the way people think about God is heavily influenced by their technology. Like one of the reasons probably that Genesis describes man as being formed from clay is because clay pots were the highest technology of the time. And so when they were trying to work out like, okay, how does, how did God form man? Well, he's doing the same thing. And and now today with computers and VR technology being the thing, people are like, oh, everything's a simulation, but it's the same psychological move. It's ascribing to God our highest ability, right? And the reality is something more complex. It's not, it's not, not that in some ways, but it's also more complex than, than, than what you're thinking about. And so, so you're saying that the technology of the time tends to be the direction in which we oversimplify ideas. Correct. And so big, the, the, the decentralization is going to lead to that in, religious space in ways mm. but if you think about it bitcoin already has some religious aspects i mean first of all the prophet satoshi makamoto who is he nobody knows but he came and he delivered a sacred text called the white paper right <laughs> which people always refer to yeah. and they and they base all of their judgments on the white paper and bitcoin was immaculately conceived out of nothing um and the first block is called the Genesis block, right? And then you have these early disciples like like Hal Finney who received the first Bitcoin from Satoshi and Jeff Garzik and all these people that are like, you know, they're like the original apostles of the Bitcoin. And you have holidays, like every 210,000 blocks mined, which is approximately every four years, the reward for mining is halved. It's called halving day. Okay. Right? It's like a holiday. And, and then... Uh, the birthday of Bitcoin, January 3rd, is proof of keys day. You pull your coins from the exchanges to ensure they actually have them, right? Uh, May 22nd is pizza day. The day in, I think, 2012 or 13, 10,000 Bitcoins were used to buy two Papa John's pizzas. Uh, <laughs> you have schisms, right? You got Bitcoin. There's Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold. People are like, no, my weight is better. This is better. Uh, this is, you know, your, your Bitcoin is, is, uh, a distortion of the original. Mine is the good one. You have claim, you have claims to the Messiah ship, just like people claim to be Jesus. There's a guy running around that now called Craig White, right? He claims he's Satoshi. He could easily prove this by sending some coin from Satoshi's original keys. And he does not. And he has all these excuses, right? <laughs> and no one really believes him except the BSV sect crowd, right? They've got... <laughs> okay. They've got these sayings and incantations. It's like wrecked, mooning, fud, FOMO. Uh, it's it's very. 
And they've even got conversion spectacles. Like everyone's like, I just bought some Bitcoin. They post it all over social media. It's like, I just found Jesus, you know? So it's already taking on this sort of religious thing. And again, that's probably bad, but I'm not saying good or bad at the moment. I'm just describing what's happening. And so uh, things are going to get weird. That's my, things are going to get so weird and messed up and the governments around the world are going to fall and central banks are going to be like, what? And there'd be no reason for these insurance companies. And again, it's not tomorrow. It's not tomorrow, but it is 10, 15, 20 years from now. Right. Well, it, it is interesting. You know, if you think back, there's precedent for this sort of thing in in history, I think. And the one that's springing to my mind would be World War One, where, um, you know, industry and industrial technology uh, unleashed itself upon the globe in mm-hmm. uh, horrific warfare that some many thought was maybe the end of the world because it yeah. was just so destructive and total. And and the world had never seen anything like that up until that point. Um, and it replaced all the existing. I mean, before that, before World War One, yeah, everyone in Europe was a monarchy. Yeah, I mean, just think about that. It was run. It was like the aristocracy, and then the new technology just swept that all aside. Just shoosh. Mm-hmm. And then it's been replaced with this liberal democracy thing, and this like these institutions, and the and this Bitcoin thing is gonna just roll over them like a wave. And they'll be gone. Now, are they going to like that? No. Is there going to be something similar to World War One in response to try and... St- probably. I mean, it, it may get real bad in the transition period. Mm-hmm. And you should just be aware of that and try to coyote mindset your way out of it. You know, but... Yeah, so if the, so if the, the feds uh, come to your door like, do you have Bitcoin... What you should do is treat them like they are a man in black. Was that a good segue? Not really. I'm going to go with it. I'm going to go with it. Here come the men in black. I want to talk about the men in black today. Are you familiar with the men in black? I mean, like the Will Will Smoth movie? Yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, the Will Smoth movie. The, The Will Smoth movie. Mm-hmm. Um, no, not the Will Smith movie. I mean, like the the UFO G men who come when you have experienced um a UFO or some sort of similar thing. Okay, okay. Now we've talked about the Men in Plaid. Which yes, is the, the Men Canadian in Plaid are what happens. What happens when you see a Bigfoot? Oh, okay, right. Which is the Men in Plaid are a similar phenomenon to the Men in Black, uh, and they are not as well documented. That's just a couple of people talking about him. And I think most of them are nutters. <laughs> However, the men in black have a s- pretty solid folkloric foundation. Right? So, I'm going to read you a little bit here. <clears throat> the door banged really slowly, but hard, like someone was hitting it with their fist instead of knocking. When I opened it, there was this horrible little man about five feet tall. He was dressed in a black suit and a tie and had a funny little black hat on. His face looked really strange, like someone with anorexia, you know. His cheeks were all gaunt, his eyes all dark, and his skin was almost white. I didn't know what to do and just started. It was really frightening. Then he just suddenly gave me this horrible grin, and I could tell his lips had been colored. 
like lipstick or something. He took off his hat and he had on a really bad black wig. He looked about 60, but the wig was jet black. All he said was, we would ask you cease your studies. I said, what? Then he repeated it exactly the same. We would ask you cease your studies. And I had to ask what he meant. The skylights, always the skylights, he answered. Then it dawned on me. I'd seen a UFO. Late at night, about a week before, when me and my husband had been driving home, and we both had a really weird dream about some little men standing around the car at the edge of the trees. Then he said something like, Cease and dream easy. And he gave me a really long stare, like he was going to attack me or something. But he didn't. He just walked away, down the drive, and I started to feel dizzy and slammed the door. I just crawled into bed and fell asleep for about three hours, but when I woke up there was this horrible smell like burning rubber all through the house. We had to have the windows open for days and get the carpet cleaned to get rid of it. It really shook me up. Classic Men in Black story. Whoa. The Men in Black are one of the scarier phenomena in the paranormal universe. Maybe scarier than seeing the UFO. Uh, What I just read you is from Nick Redfern, who's a great researcher, his book, The Real Men in Black. And those statements were from uh, were made in 1994 by an UK mother and housewife named Helen, uh, who lives in uh, (coughs) central England in uh, Canuck Chase. So these things um, come if you have a paranormal experience that's very profound Occasionally, you are visited, sometime later, by the men in black, who have been for decades, but probably for centuries or thousands of years, actually, if you look into it, um, appearing in a sort of elusive, predatory, fear-inducing manner. Mm -hmm. Man. Yeah. So, quite a departure from the Wall Smoth version. (laughs) Right, in the Will Smith version, the men in black, see this is there's various th- theories to who the men in black are. Uh one of the most popular being, oh, it's the government, they're intimidating you, they don't want you to talk about their secret military technology, which is what the UFO was that you just saw, right? Okay. Um however, and that theory that theory has a lot of legs with people because it makes the most sense. However, the men in black actual witnesses are have so many paranormal elements to them mm-hmm. that it makes you say these these creatures are are a not human and b not probably not of this world or not of this realm. What what are they? Um, no one. Some people think they're aliens themselves. Some people think that they are um, government agents. Like I said, some people think they're angels. Some people think they're demons. Uh, some people think they're none of the above. Right. But they they appear and they they're always wearing black, as we said, black suits, crisp white shirt though underneath, and their mannerisms are always they fit in, but but only there's always something just a little off about them. Like there was this one story of this UFO guy, and he saw a UFO, and the men in black came to visit him while he was sitting in a diner. He was just sitting there eating, and then in through the door come. Two men in black, they sit down with him, they start talking in a very robotic way, and they order, uh, you know, their food, and the, the waitress brings it, and she brings out Jello, and then uh, they sort of look at it for a minute, and then one of them takes the straw out of his cup and starts trying to sip the Jello, 
through the straw. <laughs> just like they don't quite know how to eat. You know, or like, or like he would just order. He and I remember if that story is, if I remember correctly, they said at first she said, "What do you want?" And he said, "They go food. We would like food." Oh, weird. And that's how they order, right? The Men in Black I've I've been fascinated by because, well, so so they very often travel in groups of three, very often, which brings to mind this is why so, some people make the connection to angels because angels. In the Bible and in the Quran, and traveling groups of three also. Okay, they show up. All right, the 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 Men in Black are a trinity of sort of evil, I guess maybe. But I mm-hmm. think they're evil. Some people think they're not, but we'll get into that. Um, and they're in the United States. They're seen driving 1950s style black Cadillacs, and in the British Isles, 1960s black Jaguars. Both of which are always described as like they're old cars, but they always look brand new. Right, so like they just like it just rolled off the lot yesterday. Their preferred mode of dress uh, is a black suit, black fedora, or Hamburg style hat, black sunglasses, necktie, socks. Right. Um, so, I think that, uh, like I said, the 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 government thing doesn't really work out because this has happened so many times. Like out, like there, like in Vietnam, there was a similar phenomenon. Not men in black, but men in uh, blues, men in dress blues. Mm-hmm. So what what you had happen was, and this is this is uh, recorded by the military themselves because they looked into it, can never find, and you can find their documentation of when they you know were trying to do inquiries and send out intelligence agents to figure out who was doing this, and they never came to anything. But these men in in dress blues would pull up in a government car. To various people, usually out in the countryside, out in the boonies, and they'd say, um, they'd get out and they'd knock on the door, you know, and then the lady would come to the thing and say, we're sorry, but your son has been killed in Vietnam. And they'd have, uh, and they'd have a very detailed report, they'd have paperwork, they would come in, they'd sit, they'd be with the grieving mother, they'd, and then like two weeks later, the, the woman would get a letter from her son and then, or a call, and she'd be, oh no, I'm not dead, what are you talking about? Who told you that? Right, and this happened to dozens of people. And okay, stop for a second. So during the Vietnam War, the government would go visit. I mean, they did do this, right? But then there were some imposters running around doing this, also. Yeah, and every single person the imposters told the family was dead was not dead, and they eventually came home and were fine. Like, and, and, but see, there would always be, and they would always, they would follow military protocol to the letter, like boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. They had the, they had the insignia, they had the thing, but there'd always be one thing, always be one thing that was off. Like they'd show up and they'd have the government car and they'd be the two of them. They'd have the nice buzz cut and everything, but then they'd be wearing tennis shoes. And they would, they wouldn't really, the family wouldn't really think about it till later. Like, you know, it was weird that they were wearing like white tennis shoes with their dress blues. You know, or like hmm. they're, or like they're, uh, if, if, if the person at home was also a military man and knew things, he, they'd have maybe, maybe the insignia on just the wrong shoulder. Nothing like something that only that person would pick up. Right. So that this, and people looked into this heavily The the, the, Air, the Air Force in particular sent Lots of people around to look and like interview and like, who was it? Who who was coming? Is it the same people? Is this like Russians that are just trying to mess with people? But why are they doing that? 
Right. Or, you know, like that doesn't make any sense. And no one, no one ever was caught. No one ever came of it at all. And so the, the man in black, that's a man in blue phenomenon, but it's very similar. Always one thing off. They come very formally, um, but there's just something off about them. And then they deliver this message that is not true. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go through some case files because cool. the men in black are super like, I'm just going to go through sort of the, the basic 20th century history of the men in black. So you get a feel for it. Okay. First one was an Albert Bender. He's the first person that has the modern men in black phenomenon. Although as we described and we'll see, I think it's probably been going on for ages. So it was 3 PM on June 24th, 1947. Um, that Kenneth Arnold had the first modern UFO sighting, right? And that, um, you know, he was, he was near, uh, Mount Rainier and it was this whole, this whole thing widely publicized. And that caught the attention of a guy named Bender, uh, when he was a young man, Albert Bender. And, um, he became obsessed with UFOs. And then as, as you do obsessed with more esoteric things and then obsessed with the occult. And then he started living in his stepfather's house in the attic. And then he started doing that and not having a job. And then he started doing that and painting uh, spiders on his walls. And then he started doing that and having like uh, skeletons, um, like macrame skeletons in, in the corners to scare people that came over. As you do. <laughs> and then he started doing that and trying to do witchcraft. And then uh, he started, you know, he started... Uh, uh, reading the 14 times, and then he started doing all these things, okay? In the black magic, seances, Ouija boards, the whole nine yards. Okay. Okay. Um, so he, he, he even called his attic the Chamber of Horrors, right? Uh, <laughs> right. So he then just decided in 1952 um, that he would take his that love of the weird to the masses. And he started the international flying saucer bureau, the IFSB, uh, in 1952. And it took off. It had its own magazine called space review. It took off brilliantly. People within a few months were all around the world were sending him their reports and he was getting like interviewed by the newspaper and he's sending his, uh, you know, he's governments are asking him about UFO sightings and he's considered an expert and he's loving it. It's going great. Right. Um, and it, the IFSB became one of the premier UFO things within the within the country, of which there were already many UFO organizations in the span of a couple of months. But it didn't last long. Um, it, it died in a couple of months, too, uh, out of st- just stark, total fear. Uh, on the, because on July 30th, 1952, only a few months after it was established, um, an anonymous telephone call rang the Bender residence. His stepfather was not home and Albert answered it. When he picked up the phone, no one spoke, but he could hear that someone was on the other line, just sort of listening in silence. Then Bender's head 
started spinning and throbbing. And uh, he felt sick and he retired to his bed. So what was that? One of the theories, and that that happens, uh, we'll say a fair bit. Um, I don't know if you in, just in, just to just to Albert or to other people also. To, the, the 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 one of the MIB calling cards is you pick up the phone, no one's there, but you hear someone there, and then you start feeling sick. Or, uh, and so a lot of people put forward that this is some early and still used sonic weaponry. I don't know. Are you are you familiar with Havana syndrome? Oh yes, this is very interesting. Havana syndrome uh, was it? I think it was 2018. Uh, the um, U.S. embassy in Havana, Cuba. A lot of the people that worked there fell ill, and they had mm-hmm. headaches, and they felt dizzy, and they had nausea, and they would throw up, and they would do. They couldn't find any bacteria or viral reason or anything, and they started looking around, and it was decided that it may have been uh, a microwave weapon, yep. or maybe an maybe an ultrasonic weapon. Like a like an audible weapon that was mm-hmm. tuned to make people feel sick, and this also a sim, Havana syndrome also broke out in China. By the way, at the uh, slightly later, I think in 2019, um, at the U.S. embassy in China. So the the official government conclusion was that Havana syndrome is caused by some sort of audio or electrical or maybe microwave weapon that makes people feel ill, nauseous, gives them piercing headaches, and makes them want to leave the area that they're in, which was successful in the Havana case. The The, the consulate was evacuated. Uh, I don't know if it was ever refilled. And so it's a good way to get rid of people if you don't want them around is you just make them feel really sick through this weird uh, weapon technology. Is well, this a, something a great, similar? Uh, just as an aside... A fantastic internet research rabbit hole is to go look at all the things that can be done um, with different frequencies of electromagnetic energy or sound uh, to humans, especially in combination with adjusting the frequency and pulsing it at a a different frequency, maybe Uh a a harmonic frequency to uh, the pulse would be harmonic to the tone, so to speak. Uh, and, and combining those things in different ways, those the properties of the transmission in different ways, and the effects that it can have on on living organisms, it, it's it's pretty freaky stuff that has been going on since uh, since like the '60s. I think uh, Brzezinski wrote about it in uh, Between Two Ages about yeah. this stuff like back in the '60s. And oh yeah, and, and they- research in many different uh, areas of this have been continuing ever since. Yeah, they they um, I mean, they at the U.S. torture facilities, which we shouldn't have, they use this sort of stuff to torture, torture political prisoners. I mean, it's yeah, it's a real. So was this is this one of the one of the theories of why this happened to Bender is maybe the G-men call him. They don't want him looking into stuff and they deploy this as an intimidation tactic. When he picks up the phone, they de- deploy this audio weapon that is producing ultrasonic frequencies that make him sick could be mm-hmm. could be um but anyway so he he recovers and a few days later he goes to the local movie theater to watch the new sci-fi movie that's come out and he's you know typical loner he's doing it by himself all this stuff uh on the way home though something happens uh he's going through the dark sidewalks 
and he becomes increasingly concerned that Bender is that he's being followed. Uh, he, but he makes it home without incident. He doesn't see anything. His stepfather was already sleeping, and he goes to the attic. Uh, on approaching the door, though, he saw that there was a glow emanating from the thin gap between the door and the floor. And he's obviously hesitant about why his room is glowing. He thought there was a fire. So he burst in, thinking that his room is on fire. And uh, he's confronted by the strong smell of burning sulfur. And a bright, shimmering object hovering in the middle of the room. Metallic looking. Almost disc-shaped. And this is very interesting because mystics throughout the ages, Christian, Sufi, all kinds have described this sort of vision of a metallic spinning thing that will appear in their room. Mm. What is that, and why does it look so much like a UFO? Let me throw a theory out at you. Um, when, when, When beings cross between realms, right? Let's say there's the realm of the dead or the or the heavenly realm or maybe the, the hellish realm or mm-hmm. wherever these things are, uh, it creates in our realm a spatio-temporal anomaly that happens to look a little bit like Quicksilver, like Mercury. And maybe it's rotating, maybe like a little bit like a, like a portal, like a portal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then when you come through, right, and there's this smell of burning sulfur, why... As Joshua Cutchin pointed out, he did this this great book called um, Brimstone Deceit about smells associated with the paranormal. Mm-hmm. Burning sulfur is so common with negative entity encounters, which is where you get the brimstone and sulfur, like the fire and brimstone thing. Right. The, the, because you smell the sulfur. And his theory was, and maybe this is why these things are so fleeting, is that coming through, they're actually... They can't exist here fully. And so when they come through, they begin decaying immediately until they go back. So like their presence here or their projection here is instantly decaying. Like they have a half-life. It's just burning off. And that's why you smell this, this sort of putrid smell that's associated with so many things in this field. Like Bigfoot, like we talked about, the skunk ape. He always has this rotten smell and he has these paranormal aspects also. Or uh, UFOs associated this smell and, and like abduction scenarios, the men in black. They all come with this. Like, so are they? And this, this shimmering disc shaped thing, a lot of UFO sightings with Bigfoot too. They go in conjunction. Is this, is that like an anomaly that, that just occurs when something crosses realms? Like, mm. is the UFO even a craft or is the UFO an anomaly of something that is like I am an angel being and I've crossed over into the earth realm, okay, into the visible spectrum. And then John Kill talked about that. He thought that they were not extraterrestrials, but ultra terrestrials. He thought that they existed on a, like a, you could imagine as a frequency or a bandwidth greater than our perceptions. So just like we have visible perceptions and we can't see the, but a narrow band of the electromagnetic spectrum, he thought that was probably true for all of our senses and that these beings existed on a wavelength higher than our senses could perceive. But when they came down or shifted frequencies down, it had all these side effects, Hmm. such as burning sulfur, temporal anomalies, stuff like that. 
Okay, so this happens to Bender. He sees the shimmering object in his room, smells the burning sulfur. His eyes feel severely irritated, right? At which point he turns on the light and the, the object vanishes into oblivion. Um, which is another thing. People always ask, like, that ghosts, like, why do they come out? Like, why, does, why when you do a ghost hunting, do you have to only go at nighttime? Like, uh, Neil deGrasse's Tyson's says this. He's like, oh, if it's real, why don't they show up at the daytime? Uh, I liked it. I liked uh, atheism, and here's my. We should all worship the stars. <laughs> boop, boop, boop. Uh, it's a great impression. Was, yeah, that's that. <clears throat> but um, so well, one of the reasons may be that photons themselves break down the ability of these things to cross over from the lower realm. So maybe it's very literal that the light dispels the darkness, like. Like the light oh, yeah. is somehow right, and so the the, pho- the photons themselves, because there's something very mystical about light, because it's mm-hmm. like the median light exists outside of time, and like in a purely physical physics sense, a photon does not experience time, uh, and so this it's basically light always exists in the realm of the eternal, and so maybe things from the lower frequencies if you want to use that metaphor when they come up if they encounter photons they encounter light it dispels them it breaks their ability to stay here hmm which is why which is why you instinctively feel safer from ghosts when you turn the light on right yeah 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 right yeah. because that's what see you see what i'm saying so mm-hmm. maybe this is a very natural like we're starting to talk about the physics of the realms here Right, but I think I think you can infer some things from this because you have these these smells, these visions. Like I said, my vision, my my working theory right at the moment is that these these UFO things that appear like crafts, but they're actually um, a side effect of something crossing over, and that that that's like the that is like the you could think of it as the portal or maybe the artifact of something coming through and then you have the smells that are associated with it because it it does it's not stable here it is decaying and that the light it's there that when light is put upon it they, they're dispelled because the, the because they are encountering the eternal and they're not, you see what i'm saying yeah i think there's a very Fit, nat, it's quote unquote natural, but it's also supernatural. But I think the supernatural works according to rules. Also, we just don't understand what they are. Um, that that is ha- is maybe how this is playing out. Okay, so uh, that thing goes away in Bender's room, uh, and he has OCD, obviously, because he's a shut in, a weird shut in, and he could see that all of the files, his UFO files for his uh, IFSB, were had been shuffled. Something had been rifling through them. Men in black do this all the time. You go home and all your papers have been rustled. Nothing's moved or taken. They just want you to know they've been there. Hmm. They just want okay. you to know they've been looking, right? Yep. All right. So Bender tries to put this behind him. As all people do when they have some vision like that. They try to go, oh, I was being crazy. I was tired. I don't know. Ba-da-ba. Okay. But then, uh, um, and he's, you know, he goes back to his thing of, um, methodically affixing large plastic spiders to the ceiling to terrify his friends. Entirely normal for a 30-something-year-old, of course. Um, and going to the local movies. Um, but then, uh, in November 1952, Bender was watching another sci-fi movie. Again, 
alone. Um, and he gets overwhelmed by a strange, unsettling feeling. Mixture of dread, nervousness, right? And a sense of being stared at. Hmm. And it's an old cinema. There's not many people there. Out of the corner of his eye, Bender sees a human-like form materialize in a nearby seat. Ooh. Oh, he says, quote, a well-dressed man in dark clothes seemingly appeared out of nowhere. The shadowy figure could hardly be considered a local, however, for one thing, his eyes glowed like flashing bulbs. And again, he was struck by the dizziness and the nausea. Um, Closed his eyes, opens them again. The man's gone. Minutes later, though, the man returns. Turns around and he sees the man staring at him from the back of the movie theater. How creepy is that? You turn around and there's a man in black just sitting there in the thing. And he's not looking at the movie. He's just looking at the back of your head. Oh, dude. Very unsettling. Uh, the men in black are masters of intimidation tactics. So, again, you have this, 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 the the glowing eyes. Bigfoot has the glowing eyes so often. The, the, the grays have glo- the glowing eyes. The Mothman had glowing eyes. Mm-hmm. The glowing eyes is always... Is a recurring motif. I don't know what that means, but, um, yeah, people try to get 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 around the glowing eyes by saying the Bigfoot has eye shine like animals do. Yeah, maybe, but a lot of the depictions are are of f- not so much shine but illumination. But maybe, sure. maybe. Okay, so he had all the, he, this goes on for they disappear for a while, and for months he has this. Dizzy spells, and he still gets the phone calls occasionally. He has poltergeist activity in his attic, uh, brimstone odors, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was at the height of all this mental and physical torment, midway through 1953, that three men in black um, visited him. Um, And they said uh, he, um, they came to the door, and they said... um, Listen, you're getting too close to the truth about UFO presence in our world. You are not to reveal anything that we tell you uh, or anything that has been happened, anything that you know. Destroy all your files and cease immediately. And so the IFSB shut down uh, for good. And in the last magazine issue, um, he said his... His uh, words were, I would like to print the full story in Space Review, but because of the nature of information, uh, I am sorry that uh, I have been advised in the the negative. And we advise those engaged in saucer work to please be very cautious. And that's the end of it. He's visited by three men in black. Instantly shut. Now, now, they appear demonic, right? They appear bad. Yeah. However, some people people have pointed out that this was actually good. They They scared him straight. Because Bender drops the weird shut-in act, mm-hmm. he stops the paper mache spiders, he stops the, and he he goes and gets a normal job. He goes out in the sunlight. He starts going for walks. He eventually gets married and lives a normal life. Mm-hmm. So their effect okay. was good, even though they're they seem pretty ominous. But that was the first. Um, that was the first real. Um, men in black encounter in the modern era. Uh, but of course, um, there are more. Like I said, um, so that was in the 1950s. Okay. Um, 
later on we get the uh, FBI involvement. So the same year that Bender, in the late 1950s, got a visit from the man in black, right? Um, the FBI got involved because uh, there were there. So okay, well, uh, there was a UFO investigator, Harold Wilkins. Um, was appraised of the facts relative to a recent highly unusual MIB encounter that reportedly led the FBI to become in the saga. So, Wilkins was this UFO investigator, and um, he had been talking to people that experienced UFOs, and an informant told him that in, in January 1953, two emaciated men, uh, maybe at least six and a half feet tall, so tall, uh, in their black gear, you know, um, arrived out of the blue at his attorney's office and were quickly and inexplicably given prestigious positions within the company, despite the fact that no one knew who they were. Um, and they never said anything about it. Um, and Wilkins informant advised him that the, the, the bone structures of these two men were markedly different. Mm-hmm. So their wrists, their wrists and hands appeared to be free of joints. Ew. Right. And one of the men possessed remarkable strength. So, uh, one of the, in one day, one of the men was leaning on a filing cabinet and the weight of his left hand left a one inch indention in the metal filing cabinet. And this sort of, um, so someone within the company chose to call the feds because they thought this is strange. These men are spies or something. And they, the Fed, the, the FBI dispatched two real G men, two real FBI agents to investigate. Um, and then with J. Edgar Hoover's people hot on their trail, the two people, two men just disappeared from the company and were never seen again. So as soon as that people went in to investigate, they vanish. And the FBI men took the filing cabinet as evidence. Uh, they, they quote unquote sequestered it and they had it examined and they determined that the cabinet would have required a force of 2000 pounds or more to leave that indention. Huh? Hmm. So, uh, the FBI got into the, uh, now is there any truth to the FBI being in there? Well, um, yes, because the FBI, um, well, the, the FBI started leaving. They have all these, when you do freedom of information act, act request upon that time period, there are all these, just like the military in the in the Vietnam War era, there are all these documents talking about how they are looking for FBI imposters. Oh. Same thing. Okay. They're always, and they never find any of them. They're always are one step ahead. And in fact, one of the FBI documents mentions how they're always one step ahead and how they're frustrated about it. They said the the imposters, wherever they are, appear to always know when we are coming. I mean, could this just be like Cold War paranoia run wild? Could be. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It, it could be. Now, here's where it gets a little weird, though. One day, someone asked, uh, someone sent a personal letter to Hoover, to J. Edgar Hoover, um, about this, uh, these these people. And um, Hoover's response, you can still look up these documents, was, I am instructing, the quote, he, he sent a return letter, 
I am instructing a special agent of our Oklahoma City office to contact you concerning the matter of the men you mentioned. Right? And then an internal note between the special, between the FBI and, and the Oklahoma office said, an agent of your office should contact the letter writer immediately and secure copies of or information concerning the documents described. That's from the Federal Bureau of Investigations, 1958. So that's right. In, in, if you tell the FBI in 1950s America that you're interested in men in black or that you've seen one, they will send a real G-man to your house for a chat. Okay. So they were so interested in it that they would send, if you just were a random Joe that said, hey, I, I think there was a, I, I maybe one of your agents seems all dressed in black. Within, J. Edgar Hoover himself would send a man to your house to talk about it. I mean, that's the deal. You know what I'm saying? They're taking that seriously, yeah. They're very concerned about this. The FBI, like, though they publicly would often be like, oh, yeah, it's nothing. Internally, they were very interested in this subject. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, some of, like, uh, there's this guy named Brad Steiger. He's a big-time researcher, um... And uh, he's he's talked about um, so many people that in his time told him about their MIB encounters. People like um, uh, he has this one story. He said there was a, a naval officer. He said, "I can tell you uh, about the UFO sightings I had while I was in the service." And uh, Steiger said, "By all means." And he told me some, you know. And then one day he came up and said, uh, "I can't talk to you anymore. I can't associate with you." And Steiger said, what are you talking about? Like, what, what, you know, we're friends. And he said, the guy said, ever since I told you about the stories, our phone rings day and night. There's nothing but strange noises on the other end. We're getting sick. Uh, my wife is going crazy. She blames it on you. And Steiger says, I'm not calling you. What are you talking about? But she blames the harassment on his, my association with you. And Steiger said, I've lost several friends who, when we would begin talking on this issue, they would get knocks on their door or phone calls. Ooh, man. Same thing that happened with Bender. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, oh, this was this was a really good. He said, uh, "What Steiger also reported that he had because um, Steiger's an old man now, but he was a one of the main researchers in the eighties and nineties, sure. and in the seventies, really." Uh, he said, "A good friend of mine wanted to go over to Vietnam. This was when the war was going on to visit his son, who was stationed there." Uh, he was, and this man that wanted to go visit was a World War II vet. He stopped in London because he'd never been there. He wanted to spend some time there. And he wrote me quite a long letter. Um, the letter said there were three short men of Asian appearance that seemed to be shadowing me just about everywhere I went around Britain's capital. And uh, the, he said the strangest thing is that I was standing at a train station waiting to take the train. And they approached me and asked, how do you get this such and such? And he said, you're standing right under the sign. That's where the string goes. And they bowed sort of deeply in an Asian manner, even though they're wearing these black suits, and thanked him. Uh, he said, when I got back to my hotel, I looked out the window just by happenstance. And down the street, under a street lamp, I could see the three of them just standing there looking directly up at my room. Ew. Ew. <laughs> and then there was a confrontation. Uh, the mysterious group approached my friend, well, the man, while I was on the street and said, you are a friend of Brad Steiger, aren't you? And he said, yes. Then they made us somewhat disturbing. They said, tell him we'll visit him at Christmas time. 
And he wrote him that letter and said, so, you know, this is what they said. Uh, now, that never happened. Steiger never got any encounter from them uh, mm-hmm. a- at all. Um, there was also the uh, uh, MIB showed up during the Mothman prophecies, you know, with all the um, the Mothman sightings in Point Pleasant. Um, our, our, our The guy I mentioned before, you remember um, Greg Bishop? Yep. The the guy he did the Project Beta mm-hmm. uh research. He had uh he went through about two years of MIBs, uh, which is he would receive these weird phone calls. He would look outside and see people he, he would look outside and see people take a picture of his house and then get in the car and drive away. Or <laughs> or uh he, he said all of my mail was tampered with for like two years. Like I'd get it and someone had just been shuffling through it. And to his credit, Greg Bishop is very skeptical even of himself. He said, it's possible I was just suffering uh, paranoid delusions. But I still kept those letters and it looks to me like someone was opening them. Like someone is doing it. And I did see people take pictures of my house and there were real weird phone calls that occurred. But, but, and there's the, he said, when I decided to stop worrying about it, it stopped. And that's key, I think, because so much of this, it always comes back to this fear-inducing thing. Mm-hmm. Like, in the public sphere also, it's always like about inducing fear, inducing fear, inducing anxiety. Yep. And the, the, the public sphere of what happens with evil is the same, although it's more diffuse and not as personal as like a real entity showing up and doing it to you. But the object is the same. It's to induce uh, emotion. It's an, to induce fear. Sometimes they come to induce lust or jealousy, right? And I've heard the theory, I don't know if I buy it, but the, the, these people, that this is where vampiric lore comes from because these beings feed off the negative energy somehow. Like that enables them to come up to to our realm is this negative energy empowers them more. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but I could I could sort of see that I could sort of see that because he because Greg Bishop said, "Listen, when I just uh, stopped doing it, it just sort of um when I stopped caring so much, and I said I'm tired of being paranoid. I'm just exhausted with it. Then the activity started to go away, and now doesn't happen anymore." So I this this calls to mind a story I want I want to get your take on. Yeah, this happened to me a few years ago. So sure. uh, my my home has a lot of uh, shrubs and trees and kind of gardeny stuff around it. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day I was looking out the the window and I could see through the, a gap. Um, someone uh, pulled up to my driveway, got out of the car, and was taking pictures of my home. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And and so I quickly jumped up, went out the back door, um, snuck around through the garden uh, under cover of the bushes and things, and kind of got the jump on this guy. Uh-huh. And I and, you know, said, what are you doing? Why are you taking pictures of my house? Right. And he, he got real flustered and um, said something about he's with a realty company. Mm-hmm. And I told him to get off my property and and and. He left. Mm-hmm. And I thought about it. I said, well, um, I can't. Ima- I mean, my house was not for sale. 
Right. So I can't imagine why a realty company would be taking pictures of my house. It didn't make any sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but I also just sort of decided I wasn't going to worry about it unless it happened again and it never happened again. So I just sort of forgot all about it. But it immediately sprang to my mind when you were talking about uh, the guy showing having pictures. People show up, take pictures of his house. So do you think that was a men in black uh, encounter? I don't think I was researching anything too controversial at the time. Yeah, I'm, it may be. But also in the reverse, Greg Bishop has said, you know, maybe I was just being super paranoid and it was a real estate agent. He says that, right? Maybe. Okay. So All right. he, he, All right. Greg Bishop is very critical of his own experience. He said, but people were ruffling through my mail. And I did mm-hmm. get weird phone calls. And he said he said at one point he would the person upstairs was mimicking his movements all day one day. Like he would get up because he lived in an apartment. He'd get up and he'd walk to the kitchen and someone upstairs would make the same motion, like walk across the same floor plan. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. And he said so he said, so it was just driving me insane. And this calls to mind. Remember when we did the early show about different types of hauntings? Mm-hmm. Possession hauntings. They always focus on getting the individual isolated, cutting them off from other people, and then they make them retreat internally into into like a spiral of of paranoia and fear. Yep, and that enables and this the the men in black encounters mirror that same sort of desire. So could it why- be that in your energy, your idea that they're they're looking to feed off that negative energy? So could they be out there just trying different people and seeing what they get, who they get a response from, who, who, who will follow them down that spiral? I think so. I think, yeah, I think that that could very well be, um, like how, how, like, because, uh, and maybe, maybe people that are prone to get interested in UFOs and aliens and stuff are commonly personality types that would be susceptible to this uh, spiritual vampirism they right. are describing. Well, you know, I know a woman, and I won't say her name because uh, this is a very upsetting story for her, but she got up in the middle of the night and it reminded me of the MIB, even though it, it really wasn't, I, I don't think. She never really described what he was dressed in. Maybe he was. Um, she got up in the middle of the night to go get a drink of water. Uh, she gets up. She's, un, she's you know, she's just like unreasonably thirsty at four in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, she gets up, she goes into the kitchen, she, she turns on the light and she told me there was a man sitting at my kitchen counter, Ooh. just looking right at me. And she said he, she, he smiled at me as if he was the devil wanting to eat me. And then he vanished. And she said, I've been terrified ever since getting up in the nighttime to like go into a different room of the house. And, uh, I don't know. What do you make of such things? Like this is someone I know personally, and she's she's very. I mean, it could be a hallucination. Mm-hmm. Could be she's still in the dream state, right? Well, I've, but, I've had a dream very similar to that. I think I talked about it on the show. Yeah. I mean, mine was definitely a dream, but it did mess me up for a little while. Right. Right. Yeah. So let's finish talking about. I'm talking about one of the creepiest ones. I think. Okay. Uh, and this is. It also ties in with other UFO lore. So. um September 11, 1976, uh, Dr. Herbert Hopkins um, was a general practitioner in uh, uh, Orchid Beach, Maine. Uh, He was also a hypnotist, and he had done, he was working on the abductee scenario, the new abductee thing, and he was sort of a, 
dabbling in like how do we cure these people of like their their mental paranoias that has occurred. Really mm-hmm. doing things that a psychologist or a psychiatrist should should have been doing, but they weren't doing it because no one was taking the abductee seriously. Okay. Uh, so he start he had done some some recent um, an alleged alien abductee named David Stevens. Um, Hopkins had gone him through a hypnotic regression thing and had him recover, quote unquote. Although that has problems, his alien abduction scenario, right? And he'd written it all down and taken some interesting data. So anyway, on on the night in question, um, Hopkins was alone uh, and his family was out. The telephone rang. On the other end, someone claiming to be a represent to represent the New Jersey UFO Research Organization um, said that he wished to speak with the doctor about Stephen's case. Now, Hopkins did not know at the time that there was no such thing as the New Jersey UFO Research Organization, right? Uh, and it's and he did something weird. He invited the man over right then and there. Hmm. He said, "Oh, okay, it was, yeah, just come over and we'll talk about it." Um, yeah, come over now, right? And uh, so that's not something he felt that he would normally do. But nonetheless, he gets up and he goes and he goes to um, he puts down the phone and uh, he goes and he turns on the porch light for the guy. And the guy's already there. Ooh, yeah. Walking up the driveway. No car. He's just walking up the driveway. <laughs> right and this is and this is another thing it gets back into it it sort of dovetails with both these and both of what his actions here with the vampire lore this is why i say it goes yeah. back a long time because the the sort of vampiric glimmer that sort of like makes people in a hypnotic state to do things they normally wouldn't do mm-hmm. like they they're such a smooth talker that you just the silver tongue and you just and then he invites him in you have to invite them in they can't come in on their own. Every one of these cases where the, the, the men in black come knocking, they always say, can we come in? And you have to say yes. And that's true of, of all demonic encounters. You always have to invite them in. The, and you often don't realize you're doing it because of this silver tongue. is the silver tongue of temptation. right? Just, but so, that, so, so he invites them in. The man comes in and he says... Uh, they start talking for a while. The, the Hopkins dog hates the thing. The, the, he puts his tail between his legs, runs to the other room. Doesn't like him. The guy has all the classic men in black things. Um, you know, hat is a little frumpy. Uh, odd, sort of robotic looking skin, sort of deathly white. Mm-hmm. Um, all that. Then the man says, uh, I, I know you're into UFOs um, and you're doing this abduction research. Have you ever heard of uh, Betty and Barney Hill? He says, yeah, I have. And Betty and Barney Hill were the first real publicized abduction case. And he says, oh, good. Uh, t- take a take a coin from your pocket. Somehow the man knew that Hopkins had a coin in his pocket at the time. He does. And he says, hold it in your p- palm. And he does. And then the man in black just sort of looks at it. And Hopkins says, I watched the coin turn into smoke in my hand and disappear. Ooh. And then, then he said the the man in black looked at him and said, "But he said Barney Hill died because that happened to his heart. Don't let it happen to you. Stop looking into this." And then he walks out. Holy cow! 
Now, now in truth, in truth, that is not what killed Barney Hill. Barney Hill was dead at that time, but he died of, I think, like um, uh, like a brain aneurysm. Okay. That, that wasn't – Barney Hill's heart was intact when he died to all mm-hmm. medical – so this was a lie. Right. But a very intimidating lie. And the guy was freaked out beyond recognition. He abandoned all this stuff. He didn't do, and he he was he's been shook up for decades. Um, it it had neg it had very negative consequences on his personal relationships, and because he just sort of went into this crazy mode uh, after having this happen to him, which makes me think that something did happen to him. Whatever, whether it is that story or not, who can who can say? But, um. One thing to note is that they all, you know, remember how I described their Asiatic? These people have like sort of slanted eyes, mm-hmm. but they also have pale white skin. John mm-hmm. Keel, who was a great paranormal researcher of, of all stripes, he used to go around, he actually documented all the Mothman story, but he used to go around and he would, he'd have this big briefcase and he would uh, have pictures in it of various UFOs, and he would go to a witness and he'd say, okay, did it look like this one? No. What about this one? Oh, it looked like this one, right? And he started doing the same thing with the man in black. He got pictures of various, of all the world's various ethnicities. Mm-hmm. And when someone would say they had a man in black encounter, he would go and interview them. And he'd, at some point, he'd take out his pictures and he'd say, um, did they look like this? And they'd be like an African. And like, no. This? Be like a Chinese person. No. No. Spaniard, no. Every time, without exception, and take this for what you will, I don't know what it means. Everyone that saw the MIB, when he got, he pulled out the photo, he said, it's that one. It's the Laplander. Ooh, like Finnish? Like Finnish. And that makes yeah. sense because the Finnish people are semi-Asiatic, but they're also yeah. Caucasian. They're pale, but they have that sort of slanty eye thing. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. they sit right on the border of where Asia begins and Europe ends, and they sort of have both genetics. And every single one of them was like, "It's that guy. It's the Flemish." So all men in black are really Laplanders, and the Laplanders is where the demons come through. Is the logical conclusion? <laughs> no, that's not probably not true. Laplanders are probably not demonic, but that is see. That's what I mean. That the the the. What are the odds that all these people that have no previous knowledge of men in black folklore never really even thought about it before they had a UFO encounter or something? Like, never even considered it long before the MIB movie was made or the X Files. Mm-hmm. Every one of them, without exception, says, Oh, it's that guy. My right. guy is this white guy with slanty eyes. What are the odds that happens? That's pretty weird. There's- I, yeah, it's so – and there's so much – like all the stories – this is way before it has media exposure and like it's widely known about. But everyone's describing the same thing, much like we talked about with the Bigfoot encounters. People describe the same thing. He has that smell. He has the – his hair is always the same sort of color. He always has the same behavior, even though these people have really never heard of or thought about Bigfoot ever. Mm-hmm. So – Take that for what you will. Um, that is the the sort of that's what you can expect if you get too into the crypto space and challenge the world governments. <laughs> you're gonna get a you're Man gonna get a encounter. visit from from Finnish men from Finnish Gaunt, men in black Gaunt suits Finns. that have supernatural abilities and smell like sulfur. 
Everyone knows. That's what happened to Satoshi. That's why he's gone. I don't want to believe that that's what happened to Satoshi. They they intimidated him out of existence with the, the men in black thing. No, I don't know. Yeah, but I, I, uh, I, I didn't want to talk too much politics this week because I felt people were politicked out. That's so probably a good do, move. We do crypto and uh, taking over the world. And also uh, men in black, which you should be wary of because they are real. But they also are. you shouldn't be afraid of them because if you're afraid of them, that gives them more power. Could You, you couldn't hear that I was playing the outro, could you? No. Uh, yeah, I was playing it. Are we still recording? Well, we are. I stopped okay. it because well, it sounded like you were rolling. Well, let's keep. Let's keep. Uh, and, and I thought he can't hear the outro. I can't hear but, the outro. But maybe but you know, I was I, a little premature. Now I want to talk about. I want to talk about some of our listeners. <laughs> Do you know who the? You know, we need to have a a maps beauty contest. I sort of feel that. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. But I feel that Einstein is more attractive than most of our listeners. He's he's that, a handsome guy. Yeah. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, so is Lanky sort of, Elvis. They're both they're both well, a handsome guy. I don't think Lan- I don't think Lanky's actually that attractive. I've never you seen know? either of them, but just 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 okay. from the feeling. Okay, okay. Yeah, you can play the outro now if you want to. I just uh, wanted to insult Lanky Elvis. <laughs> okay. Boo, 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 boo. Do you have any anybody else you want to insult over, you know, as we talk over the outro? Um, uh, no, I think I'm good. I insult Rocket Man. I insult you, okay. Rocket Man. I insult well, all the listeners that haven't donated to the show yet. I insult them. Insult them, I insult, yes. No, we don't really insult you. The men in black may come visit you, though, if you don't donate. Now, okay, there's a good marketing angle. <laughs> what if we just have you dressed up in a suit and you just show up at people's houses and demand money? I mean, if that's what it takes, that's another way to in, to qualitatively increase the value of our audience. Mm-hmm. Right there.